thank you folks for having me. Uh, thank you folks who are watching online. Uh, it's an exciting opportunity for me to be here. Um, as Dan said, uh, we've grown to know each other pretty well. Tremendous respect for Dan. Um, and uh, because of that, I just have sort of, uh, by osmosis, tremendous respect for you folks. Um, thank you for having me here. Uh, we're going to talk about a number of things, um, but the first is things are hard these days, right? Like everything. Like I'm in the world of church and church health and pastoral health. You all maybe are in healthcare. That's hard right now. Retail, hard right now. Food service, hard right now. Education, hard right now. Like everything just seems heavy and weighty, right? And I'm in this, this role of um, church vitality, which means I get to go around to all these churches and try to talk about what it looks like to be healthy, try to help make sure that our pastors are energized and they have some life that they can sort of pour out of their cup so when they're leading people, they're not just tipping an empty cup over. And so I want to start by just giving you folks some very general numbers. You guys know about like general statistics, right? Like um, COVID stats across the nation are whatever, but they're not super helpful because right? they're not really in our context. So I'm going to start big, and then we're going to get to kind of grassroots granular. But these are some things that are going on in the church today, just broadly, as we talk about church health. There are about 380,000 churches in America. There are 110 brethren churches. Woot, woot. Like, we're excited about that, right? <laughs> um, the average attendance across denominations and across the country is 70, and it takes about 76 people to pay for one full-time salary which puts us at a disadvantage. In 2014, so that seems like eons ago, right? Just eight short years ago, uh, nationally, uh, 4,000 churches were planted. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, 4,000 churches were planted, 3,700 closed. But that's like, that's plus 300, right? That's good. Again, woot, woot, we're excited. 2019, just before the pandemic, things take a bad turn. Plant 3,000, close 4,500. And if you're one of those annoying people that reads ahead, you've already looked at 2020. Nationally, 3,850 churches were planted and 7,700 7, churches were closed nationally. Um, now, I want to say, um, those numbers are scary. Um, 2021 numbers I haven't seen, but my guess is they're not going to be like, oh, we made it, right? <laughs> Church is hard right now. Uh, and I, I want to say this nine times in the message, but I'm only going to say it now. Uh, I talked with Wheezy, Louise, yeah, um, on the way in. Uh, the very fact that you guys are having the service to next week that you're having gives me great hope and needs to be celebrated. That it's not just your leaders that are talking, and it's not just the congregation that's talking, but you guys are coming together and mutually seeking reconciliation. That doesn't happen. And I go to churches all across the country. That, that alone makes me say, you guys are in great shape. Um, so I don't want anything that I'm saying today, because I've said things, and not carefully enough in the past, when people are like, Miles said we should close the church. No, that's not, I've, I'm not saying that. Don't put words in my mouth. Um, I'm not saying that at all, but what I am going to talk today about is just some ways that you can kind of assess church health. As you look at what's going on around you, you can say, how are we doing? What's going well? And what some of those important metrics might be. Um, I'm at this age, I'm 43, um, 
I was waiting for somebody to be like, no way. You don't. Um, there it is. There's the cue. Um, I'm 43 years old. That means I'm at the age where I'm supposed to go to the doctors if nothing's wrong. Right? Which I guess, like, historically, like, I've, you're always supposed to do, but I've never, it's never meant anything. Like, I haven't been to the doctors in 25 years because they feel great. But if I actually catalog myself, I'm like, actually, my knees hurt. I'm a little doughy in certain places that I wasn't doughy before. And... But what happens when we go to the doctors is these are people who are trained to look at things and determine the reality that's hidden in that, right? If I look at a vial of blood, I see red liquid. If a doctor looks at a vial of blood, he can tell me what my oxygen levels are. He can say what my cholesterol is. He can talk, I mean, not from blood, I don't think. I'm not a doctor. But blood pressure, like these are all things that we want to have as metrics, right? You, it's like dashboard lights. They tell you, hey, things, things may not be as good as you think they are. And there's also this sort of relative component to health for humans, right? I had one of my favorite humans. We, we nicknamed him Sweet Bob because his name was Bob and he was really sweet. Not a sophisticated nickname, but that's what we called him, Sweet Bob. He lived directly below us in this apartment building. He was an 86-year-old retired Catholic deacon. He was the sweetest man. He spent probably 35 hours a week volunteering in his local mission. Could barely walk around, but he was just out serving people. And every time he and I would get together, again, he led ministries, and we would talk about what it looks like to form people in Christ's image and discipleship and how to pray and all these things. That's a very healthy 86-year-old, right? He's serving in the capacity that he's designed and capable to serve in. I have a nephew whose his name's Alex. Yesterday, uh, he's, I think, eight. Hopefully my brother's not listening. Um, I think he's eight. <laughs> he played in four soccer games yesterday because apparently that's what happens. Like, you do that, I, I guess. If sweet Bob tried to play in four soccer games, that would be a disaster, Right? If my eight-year-old nephew tried to teach me what it looks like to form people in the spirit of Jesus, that would not make sense, right? There's a life cycle. There's an ebb and a flow to how we as individuals live and literally everything that's ever existed. Pumpkins have a life cycle. Blue whales have a life cycle. Giant sequoias have a life cycle. People have a life cycle. Nations, empires, churches have a life cycle. When we look back at the churches that we read about in the New Testament, they're not here anymore, right? The church of Antioch was a baller church, and that's it, a really good church. <laughs> and they're gone, right? So there's a life cycle to, to institutions, to people. So I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking this diagram you see in front of you. Uh, when we think of humans, launch, birth, right? We're born, and we're not very functional. We're trying to figure it out. We learn how to open our eyes and eventually roll over. These kind of big mile markers, stand up, those sorts of things. Then we get into this momentum growth, right? When you're a toddler, you learn all kinds of things, how to walk and how to talk and how to grab things and how to point to your face and how to fall over and not get hurt, like all these different things. There's this momentum growth. I, I read a statistic once. If people continue to grow at the rate they do the first three years they're alive, by the time we died, we'd be the size of like an aircraft carrier. And I think you're like, at five years old, somebody else, don't fact check me, people, come on. I think at five, you're supposed to be about half the height you're ever going to be. We do a lot of growing in our first five years, right? Spiritually, intellectually, physically. 
Then you get to maybe like puberty, college, and you have to start to like figure some things out, right? You don't get to just go through life aimlessly. You have to have some systems to understand the world. Then you get to maybe your working years. You have, you know, you have a job and maybe you're putting money into retirement, those sort of grown-up things. And then eventually you're just kind of cruising until retirement, right? You kind of get into this maintenance phase. You see how this, this works? Same thing happens with churches. When a church is born, when it's launched, there's maybe two families, maybe eight families, and everything's new and exciting, and you're learning on, as you go. Then maybe those eight families bring in eight families, and oh my gosh, we have this explosive growth. Now we have a church of 35 people, and 70 people. It just continues to grow. And then you get to the strategic growth. Have you ever had like Thanksgiving with just your immediate family? Like That's, that's okay, right? You have two kids and a wife or husband to kind of like wrangle Make sure there's enough cranberry sauce. There's not a lot of variables. But if you, like we used to have Thanksgiving for my side and my wife's side. My wife has five sisters. They all got kids. Like that is, like you need to have some plan, right? You can't just wing a, pers- a Thanksgiving dinner with 35 people. Same thing happens with churches. You have to put some systems in place. Then you kind of figure out all the systems. You don't have to answer as many questions. You get to this period of sustained health and then maintenance. And then I'm going to talk about the other ones here in a moment. But what we used to do uh, as the church is when we would evaluate whether we're healthy or not, we would look at one or two things, right? What were those two things? Money and people. Nickels and noses. Pennies and peoples. Dimes and derrieres, right? Butts in seats. That, and we would say, oh, you have more people than me. Your church is healthier. That's outlandish, right? We know that. Now, we've seen giant churches just collapse because they were toxic in the very marrow of their bones. They were broken. And we have churches of 25, especially globally, that are really serving the people in the community deeply and passionately and making disciples and doing all the things that bring about transformation and change. So we know now that numbers and dollars don't really make that big of a difference, right? But I think we've gotten over the years kind of a sour taste in our mouth by the very notion of, like, what does it mean to evaluate church? Does that ever feel, like, icky to people? You're like, I mean, is our church healthy? Let's measure our discipleship. It's like talking to a father and being like, yeah, you know what, man, I don't, I don't know if you're fathering very well. Like, nobody wants to hear that. But there are some things that we need to put in play, that we need to kind of raise our head, talk to the doctors and say, point out the things on the dashboard so we know what we're doing well and what we're not doing well. And so your leadership has asked me to talk about some of those things. Seven of them, I'm just going to rip through. Because you guys, if I gave you two minutes, you would guess all of these. Right? They're, not, they're pretty obvious in there. You would, you would understand them. Uh, starting at the top left, giving. If you have a generous church, that's a real sign of health. If you're willing to contribute your time and your talents and your treasures to the vision of the church, that, that's good. We see that, right? If you love and take care of children... I can't tell you how many churches I go to, and maybe through no fault of their own, they're just like, we just want some kids, right? Y'all brethren people love kids. You know how to take care of kids. You're great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents, right? Like, you're just good at loving on children. What does spirituality and discipleship look like? Can you say, hey, I looked like this three years ago, but now I look like this. I look more like Jesus today because of being in community or because of understanding scripture, these kind of things. Is there fruit in your life? You see evidence of transformation. In the middle there, you see a guy praying 
like we would all guess this, right? If I said, what's the sign of a healthy church? You'd say, prayer. And you'd be right. But not just do you pray, but do you, like, does stuff happen when you pray? Do you have a person at your church named Pearl? Because smart money says she has a landline phone and a steno pad, and if you call her, she's going to write down your prayer and actually pray for you. Right? Do you know who those people are? Who, when they pray, things seem to happen? Who aren't burdened to pray for you? Community. Do you like hanging out with one another? Like, is this the only time you're going to see each other this week? And you're like, made it through another one. <laughs> at least it was miles this time. <laughs> like, <laughs> do, do you want to, do you come up with reasons to be in each other's company? Do you love spending time fellowshipping with one another? Do you try to get your kids together, your grandkids together? Or are you like, oh gosh, there's Randall. The, oh, is this on? <laughs> um, I'm combining vision and leadership as one, right? Like, do you, and, and I'm, this is one that I know you guys have. I've been looking at your website, and I know Dan, so I know that this isn't um, a weakness. You guys have a vision. You have a mission. You know what you're about, right? You know your values. But do you, do you trust leaders, and do the leaders trust you? Do you love and serve your leaders, and do the love, leaders love and serve you? And this is why I'm just so, again, I'm going to talk about it again. Reconciliation service, beautiful, Right? Because the smart money says there was something that was putting um, distance between those two entities, and now you're like, no, no, no. This is, this is the bride of Christ. We're going to fight for it. We're going to make this work. We're not just going to be like, well, you're, you're, you're fighting for it. So does, do you trust vision, or do you have vision and, and leadership? And then finally, worship. And i got to say, worship team. I mean, I've been searching for a church in North Carolina. We don't have any brethren churches down there, but woo. I was all nervous before you started uh, singing, and then I was like, oh no, Jesus got this. This is fine. He shows up, right? And I know Jesus, that the worship is about the Lord. It's not about us, but I do believe that this is true of the Lord, right? If you draw close to him, he's going to come close to you, yes? If I proclaim my love to Jesus, the way he responds to that is he comes closer to me, right? He's not like, oh, cool. So there should be something that's stirring in my spirit when we worship. I should feel a closer proximity to the Lord when I'm, when I'm in worship. Any of those surprises? You guys know this, right? Like, yeah, thanks, Miles. You just took 12 minutes of my life. <laughs> These ones, however, I think are, are the ones that I want to spend a little bit of time on, and I think are ones that you could overlook. No, I'll say these are ones that churches often overlook or respond to poorly. At that little spot, beware. When you go from maintenance, like, okay, we've got everything sustained, our church is humming along, there's something that happens between maintenance and preservation that, that really can just blow a church up. And sometimes it's immediate, and sometimes it's very slow. It's a slow burn, right? So I want to draw attention to that. What happens is there are two things that happen. And like I said, um, it can be sudden. You could lose two key families, and like, well, now the money's gone. What do we do? There could be a global pandemic, and you're like, uh-oh, what do we do? Right? How do we respond to these things that we do? But sometimes it's just, no, one guy left this year, two guys left the next year, three ladies left the next year, and there's just this kind of slow demise. And this is the part that's scary. What happens is we get to, in that moment, 
we have a choice. Do we preserve ourselves as a church? Do we double down on the things that we've been doing and we've always done, or do we do something different? And what often happens in churches is they, they just turn everything inward. We don't have enough money to pay for all these ministries, but we've got to pay Dan, right? And I'm not saying this is wrong, and I'm not even saying it's faulty thought, but like the tendency, it's very natural. No, we've got to take care of our people, right? We've got to make sure that we, those who are gathered, are well cared for, and we lose vision of what the mission of the church is. Our money goes inward. We've got to take care of the facility. We've got to make sure that four children we have are well cared for. We no longer reach out. Our budgets start to take on a different shape because everything is turned into preserving ourselves because we're in the midst of crisis. And the other thing, that little dude with the light bulb, what he's, creativity goes away. We don't lean into uh, who we are as creative creations. We don't want to take risks when we're in the midst of crisis, right? The budget's all a mess. Stop spending. No, go spend more money. Serve those people out there. Go get them. Love on them. There's a point at which the mission of the church, in these cases where they go from maintenance to preservation, they lose sight of what the mission is, and the mission becomes to keep the lights on. I'm telling you this now, so in 20 years, if this happens, you can say, wait a minute, who's that goofy dude that came that one time and said something about keeping the lights on? This is what I'm saying about keeping the lights on. That is not your priority. The mission of the church, Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, meaning go, movement, action, verb. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Again, this isn't a new verse to any of you, right? And then the great command Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and spirit. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbors as yourself. These two things, folks, this is the mission of the church. At Summit Ridge, at Northwest, at Northgate Community Church, at Third Presbyterian of somewhere, Idaho. Like, this is the mission, and then we get to sort of tweak it and refine it so that it's contextualized to our community, yeah? When we lose sight of this, we lose sight of what the purpose of the church is. And we have this, like, sometimes encouraging and for me, sometimes haunting verse. This is when uh, Jesus asks the disciples, hey, who do you think I am? And they're like, oh, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Who do you say I am, Peter? And Peter says, um, getting to that part, he says, you are the son of, the, the son of God, the, living, the, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Right? And Jesus says back, because, uh, he says back, Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I've given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The spoiler alert, right? Like, we win. <laughs> the good guys win, right? Good trumps evil. He's not talking about Summit Ridge. He's not talking about the Brethren Church as an institution. He's not talking about the American church. He's talking about his church, God's church, the one that he builds on Peter, the one that is focused on making disciples and baptizing all nations and loving him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Nothing to do with lights, yeah? What we often do 
is we try so hard to preserve this church on that side. Well, on that side, the little white one, the cute one. We work so hard to preserve that church that we leave ourselves incompetent and impotent to minister in the greater kingdom of God. There are times at which our church and that expression becomes a liability. central that we recognize that the very point of what we do in the church is to minister to the broader kingdom. So when you see this, when you get to that point where I said beware, right? Again, I don't think you guys are at that spot, but in 20 years, when you get there, you have to make a beeline over to the strategic growth point, right? You have to go from, man, things are tough, You have to fight the urge to say, well, let's just keep spending money the same way we have. Let's keep our staffing the same. Let's keep our building the same. Let's keep the same programs and see if that works better. We've all heard the, it's almost a cliche now, but right, insanity, we all know what the definition of insanity is, right? Doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. What we ought to do is lean into what the history of Christianity has been, right? Christians have always been people that are adaptive and creative and risk-taking. Christians are the ones who built all the hospitals. We're the ones that built all the universities. We're the ones that built all the orphanages. We took risks when we were trying to, uh, to help enslaved people, right? We are people of risk, not safety. The church has been built on this idea of innovation and adaptation. But what we end up doing often, as I've said before, is when things get uncertain or scary, we want to revert back to the things that we've always done. There's kind of a theology of nostalgia, right? Back in my day. And I'm like, it's so sad because I'm like at that age now where I can actually drop a back in my day, which is weird to me because, um, again, I'm only 43. Oh my gosh, you're shocked too. Okay. So I want to I want to reference this. Um, there's a book, the, the book of Haggai. He's a prophet. Remember, uh, the Israelites were taken away. They were the temple was destroyed. And they were in exile for 70 years. Some of them got to come back, and some of them were still alive. They had seen the old temple, and they're now seeing the new temple. And we read this from the prophet Haggai. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work For I am with you, declares the Lord. Remember that. I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I've covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Skipping just a couple verses, he says, The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And this place will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. What's going on here is these people have come back and they're like, this place? This was nothing. You should have seen the old temple, right? 
You should have seen the first temple. And, and Yahweh is like, hang tight, yo. Like, this is my gold, and this is my silver, and this is my temple. The thing that makes it beautiful isn't what you think about it. It's my presence here. And what I'm going to do in the future, because this is where I dwell. You can paint the walls pink or black or whatever. And some of you will be like, actually, I did this. I did my old church. I painted the walls, and some people are like, what have you done? It's just a different color, people. It's okay. <laughs> you should have seen it in my... Anyways. <laughs> the church of the 1950s is not what we ought to be pursuing. The church of the first century isn't what we ought to be pursuing. I have a lot of people that are like a little younger than me. They're like, first century church. I'm like, yes. They also didn't have watches. Like, they didn't have clocks. They didn't know what time it was. They didn't have tires. Right? Like, they didn't have flights. They didn't have medicine. I don't know what else they didn't have, but you, you know, it's a completely different world. Yeah, there are principles of the first century. Yes, bring them here. But contextualize them, right? We, we can't go back 2,000 years and be like, oh, the church has arrived. We can't go back to 1960 when all denominations started to decline and be like, oh, now we've arrived. No. That world's gone. And again, to this point of being built into the DNA of who Christians are is this idea of change, right? In Acts, this is one of my favorite passages. We're going to watch the birth of the church. Ready for this? Happy birthday, church. Acts 1. So Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. He's hung out with his posse for a while, and now he's going to go ascend back to the right hand of the Father. Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you coming to restore the kingdom to Israel? You guys know what a face palm is? Like this. Like, it makes a good sound when you do it right. Um, that's Jesus' last hand motion, actually, before he ascends. It's in, it's in the Hebrew text. You have to see um, But Jesus is, like, ready to ascend, and they're like, hey, so you bring in the, you bring in the guns out? And he's like, oh, my gosh, no, that's not what I'm doing. He said to them, it's not for you to know the time or the periods the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in, oops. after he had said this, he was taken up and as they were watching and a cloud, uh, they took him up as he was watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. Uh, I always picture like Monty Python in this. Like, they're like, Bye, Jesus. Bye. Bye. And they just like, keep waving. It's like, it's like the sun is setting, and they're like... And they just get caught looking, right? They're just... They get trapped. They've seen Jesus leave, and they're kind of like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. Bye! They, they, they don't know what to do. So suddenly, two men dressed in white, we tend to think those are angels, come and give them like, a nudge, like, dude, what are you doing? They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. Um, this is kind of like, hey, fellas, there's work to do. Don't, don't fall in love with, with what has happened. You have a mission. Church, we have a job to do. There are billions of people who don't know Jesus. There are hundreds of thousands of people in our... Well, I don't know how big your town is. There are a lot of people in our town that don't know Jesus. 
that don't know the love. Like, what does he say? Like, you're going to know, the, the people are going to know you're my disciples by how you love them. There are people who don't know what that means. We do. That's the mission of the church. We have to innovate. We have to do these things creatively. We get caught looking. Have you ever, uh, Little League, either you've played it or you had kids who played it? Who do you put in the right field? <laughs> Those two girls are like, us! <laughs> I don't know if you know what's going on. Um, you put the dude with like two left hands and a thumb in his forehead. Like you put the clumsiest person out there because you don't want them to do any harm, right? So the right fielder, and I say that because I've been the right fielder a lot, so this is okay. But especially in literally, nobody can hit to right field, right? Unless you happen to have a lefty, the ball is not coming there, so it's safe. You put them out there because they can't do any harm. But what you do is the kid gets like he's just looking around or like playing with a dandelion. You don't have dandelions. Some parts of the world, they have grasses and things. Um, <laughs> and children will like do things with the grass. Um, they get distracted, and then the ball comes, and like, oh, no, the, the stinking miles dropped the ball again. We get caught looking. Church, we get caught looking, get distracted, not paying attention to the things that we need to pay attention to. Sometimes we get caught looking in the past, right? We, we have this, again, this mantra, back in my day, or 1950 was really nifty, like all these kind of things that, like, harken back to a better time. When we think of revival, we think, let's get a tent. That's not what revival today should mean. And that's not to say it's a disservice to what has happened previously, right? When, when uh, Moses dies and God gives Joshua the keys to the, to the Cadillac, it's not like he's like, okay, done with Moses, forget about it. No, we still celebrate Moses. We still know what he's done. We still see the importance of, the, of what Moses' contribution to the kingdom was, right? We celebrate him. We love him. So this isn't to say that the stuff that happened in 1600 wasn't helpful. Yeah, way to go, Reformation. Like, that's really good for us. But that's not, that's not the end, right? That's not the destination. We get caught looking in the past, and we um, don't allow ourselves to be um, present. The past should inform us, but it shouldn't leave us inactive. We also shouldn't be so focused on the future that we miss the present, right? Dare I say, I mean, I, and I, this is pot calling the kettle black. I don't ever think of anything less than like a year from now. Like I just am so future focused. So Miles, need a mirror. Miles, here's what you need to know. We need to be present in what we're doing now. We need to be as the church obedient in the next step. What is God calling us to do today? As the church, as Summit Ridge, as Miles Larson, what's Jesus telling me to do today? I have to do that. I don't have to have it all figured out, but I have to be obedient in the next step. We get caught looking. I think part of the reason we do that is we, we want Jesus to have given us just a playbook, right? Here's what you do when 4,000 people join your church. What are you guys going to do, right? Like if Pentecost, right, shortly after what we just read in Acts, 3,000 people join the church. Like if 3,000 people come next week, y'all are in trouble. I mean, you'll figure it out, right? Like, you're like, okay, yeah. Stand on Dan's shoulder. Like, you'll figure something out. But we don't have a playbook. In the next few verses, uh, uh, Judas, or the disciples realize Judas is gone. He done fired himself. We have to figure out, how, how, do you, how do you call a disciple? 
How do the disciples call other disciples? They're, I, I, mean, I guess we'll like, oh, they should probably have been around for a while. Let's roll some dice. Like, that's the system they come up with. Thousands of people are at it. They have to figure out how do we sustain this now mob of people who are Jesus followers. Shortly after that, they start inviting Gentiles in, right? People of different languages and different cultures, and they're, now they're in. Like, how do you do that? Jesus didn't say, hey, just so you know, I know I'm on my way out, but in a couple weeks, we're going to add a bunch of people who speak a different language. This is what you're going to need to do. No. You know who figured that out? The disciples. They're like, uh-oh, <laughs> we've got to figure this out. The Jerusalem council. What are we going to do? And then Paul starts writing to all these churches that are struggling. Corinth, you are jacked up. You've made a lot of mistakes. We have to have a talk. And then even after Jesus, or after Paul, you come to the, you know, the Reformation and the monastic movement. In our tradition, what do, you, what do you do when the rest of the world baptizes babies and we don't think you should? We changed that. We looked around at the culture and said, mm, we don't think that works. Throughout Scripture, from the very beginning, we see these things, right? The Israelites are freed from Egypt. They're wandering. Priests are put into place. They have a tabernacle, and then that changes. They get into the Promised Land. They have some judges, and then that doesn't work, and they beg for kings, and God's like, okay, fine, have a king. And then they have a temple instead of a tabernacle, and then prophets are just yelling at everybody, and then Jesus comes, and they ignore him, and then they kill him, and then he comes back, and like, oh, we can't ignore him. And then Paul's like, uh-oh, I believe in Jesus now. I'm going to plant a bunch of churches. And then we have 2,000. The entirety, friends, of the history of the church is built on change and innovation. Adapting, responding, taking risks, Right? Prayerfully, you don't want Dan to just sit in his office and say, you know what I think we're going to do? No. In community, and this is why I can say this, because y'all are brethren, you get it. In community, in a spirit of prayer, in humility. Risk-taking is who we are as people. Creative people. Given the authority that God gives us to go and make disciples, to go to all nations, to make him famous. But so often our people are just afraid they're going to break the kingdom. What if we do something we shouldn't? I literally have had a conversation with a church that's very, very close to the end, perhaps. And like, well, we just don't know what we're allowed to do. And I said, if it's legal, <laughs> do it. Take the, I mean, because they've got six people and eight bucks. And I said, look, don't hold on to it. Don't wait. Don't, don't preserve what you have. Give it away. Take the risk. All the gunpowder you have, put in the barrel of your muzzleloader and shoot that shot. Because we can't just sit and wait. There are people out there today who need to know what Jesus is about, who need to see his love, and it has to be shaped in a way that they can understand it. I'm going to pray and something else is going to happen. I don't know what that is. Jesus, um, I, I, I pray, Father, 
for these people and all the people that are gathered today across the globe that are gathering to sing your praises, to learn your word, to have a, a spiritual interaction with you, to have your spirit come to ours in those thin spaces where we can just share uh, the same space and kind of the same breath, or that we can breathe in your Holy Spirit and serve your people and love on those who don't know you. Lord, I don't, I don't know how this message lands. Um, my prayer is that it would be heard in the spirit that it's intended as an encouragement, right? Um, this seems like a group of people who are, who are seeking you, who are humble and teachable and eager to make you famous in their community, to love on those who aren't here yet to welcome people into your family. And so, Father, I just pray that you would uh, continue to bless this group of people, that you continue to anoint them with your special giftings in the special context that they need to serve those. And, Father, we just pray that um, our continued time of worship, um, we could just draw close to you, um, that we would leave an encouraged people, uh, celebrating uh, the work that you've done on the cross for your church, uh, for the restoration of all people. We pray in the name of the risen Christ. Amen.